Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome to Putting On the Mind of Christ. Each week at this time, we go into the Ave Maria CD archives and pull on a talk or two to see what our Lord might have to say to us. Many of these talks are recorded at area conferences. Most of the speakers are nationally known, but some may have been recorded by our brother or sister sitting in front of or behind you at Mass. Ave Maria Radio presents this program of God's Word to His people. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer for Putting On the Mind of Christ. On Tuesday, September 25, 2007, in almost 90 cities and 33 states, pro-life brothers and sisters joined their hearts and prayers at kickoff events for the 40 Days for Life. This is a huge undertaking, as thousands of men, women, and children, Catholic and Protestant, trying to pray for an end to the Holocaust of abortion in this country. They gather in front of abortion mills in participating cities to pray, peacefully and non-confrontationally, 24 hours a day for the 40 days. We were at the Ann Arbor kickoff event and recorded it. That's the first part of our program today. We'll hear the keynote talk by longtime pro-life advocate Monica Miller and a song by some of the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, courageous testimonies by women from the Silent No More Awareness campaign, and we'll hear more just about what the 40 Days for Life really is. After the break, we'll hear an archive talk by Father John Ricardo, who spoke at the Dearborn, Michigan fundraising dinner a couple of years ago. Stay with us on this pro-life special edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ. This is Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. This week on Putting on the Mind of Christ, we're continuing our short pro-life series. Last week, we heard Sacred Heart Major Seminary's Professor Janet Smith's talk, Contraception, Where Are We Now?, This week we join with the efforts of the local and national organizers and participants of the 40 Days for Life campaign. Locally, they kicked off the campaign in the Red Barn at Christ the King in Ann Arbor, Michigan on Tuesday, September 25th. We recorded the event for this program. We'll hear highlights of what went on that evening, starting with a keynote talk by Dr. Monica Miller, Associate Professor of Theology at Madonna University. Later, we'll hear from Sister Joseph Andrew and a group of newly professed Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, with a song from a baby's perspective. We'll also hear two women share their testimonies regarding their abortions. 
To open the campaign kickoff, here is Kevin Kukla from the 40 Days for Life Grand Rapids, Michigan office. Thank you everybody for coming out here tonight. My name is Kevin Kukla. Um, I'm here with the 40 Days for Life campaign. Uh, at this point, as we want to do at all times with this prayer vigil, we want to start with prayer. We're going to bring up Father Ed Friedy, who's the pastor here at Christ the King Parish. Father, would you please lead us in prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, we begin with worship because it's all about you. Without you, we can do nothing. But we can do all things through him who strengthens us. We thank you, Jesus, for the love you have for the little ones. We ask you, Lord, to fill our hearts with zeal and with fire. Jesus, we repent because it was the silence of Christians that enabled this massacre to begin and continue. We ask you, Lord, give us the courage to stand and let our voices and our actions and our prayer be used to end this slaughter. That these little ones who only exist because the Lord and giver of life has brought them into being would be able to come, would be given this gift of life outside the womb. Help us realize how desperately we need you, that your humility and especially your charity would mark all of our actions. For you will not honor what we do unless we do it your way. We ask your blessing on this gathering tonight. We ask your blessing on these 40 days. Lord, we thank you for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit that you give to each one of us that we may follow you more closely with fire and zeal for the sake of your little ones. And we ask, Lord, for your grace, your strength, your blessing to rest on each of us. Help us to be a constant witness to life. For you are Lord forever and ever. Amen. Thank you so very much for coming out. This is so encouraging. I thank you for just your witness being here tonight. This is only possible through unity. I want to really stress that tonight. Let's all come together in one voice and proclaim the truth that everybody is allowed to have life and has the right to life from conception to natural death. And at this point, I want to bring up our director of the campaign, Melissa Akron, and she'll tell us all about the campaign and why we're here tonight and why we're even doing this. Thank you. 40 Days for Life. Why 40 Days for Life and what is it? Four years ago in Texas, a group of people got together and they were really frustrated at the apathy that they felt and the lack of involvement of our churches in this pro-life movement. So they got together and they had a prayer meeting about it, asking God, give us direction, please help us. And what came out of that meeting was this project, 40 Days for Life. There were three main components to it. The first was prayer and fasting. God answers all prayers, not always the way we expect, but he really hears them and all things are possible through God. And 
the fasting component. Some amazing things have happened through fasting in the gospel. It tells us that some demons can only be cast out through prayer and fasting, and I really believe that abortion is one of those things. The second component is the peaceful vigil. They came up with this 40 days that they would spend outside of an abortion mill. 40 days of constant prayer, vigil, and presence outside, just recognizing the life of these unborn children that were being killed there daily. In 40 days, because God moves in powerful ways with 40 days. He did that with Moses. He did it with Noah. He did it with Jesus in the desert, with the disciples after Christ's resurrection. And that's where the vigil came in. And then the third component was uh, community outreach. That arm of it is raising awareness in our community through a door-to-door campaign, through PR, through the radio, through newspapers, through any way that we can get the word out about the harmful effects of abortion and what's going on in our community. So 40 Days for Life was tried seven times over the last four years in different communities all across the United States. Just amazing results. The community saw 28% reduction in abortion, 700 new pro-life activists activated in one community alone, the closing of a Planned Parenthood. So it's just had phenomenal results. And most recently in Aurora, where they just completed their 40 Days for Life, they started early. They wanted their last day of their 40 Days for Life to coincide with the first day that this Planned Parenthood was scheduled to be open. Planned Parenthood had come in underneath a screen. had said, we're Gemini Corporation. Never said that we're an abortion mill. Never said that they're Planned Parenthood. And one of the contractors started to get a little bit suspicious with the bulletproof glass, the bulletproof drywall, the security measures. And so he went to his pastor. And the pastor went to the pro-life activists in the area and come to find out Gemini Corporation was indeed Planned Parenthood. So they kicked off their 40 days for life. They scheduled it within three days. They got their whole campaign together, and it was just phenomenal. One weekend, had over 1,200 people praying outside of Planned Parenthood. Their last day of their vigil was September 18th, and that Planned Parenthood did not open. God prevented that Planned Parenthood from being open. They still have a lot of court procedures to go through, so please do keep them in your prayers. But it's just amazing the way God has been working through this campaign, and the momentum just continues to build. So that brings us to our local campaign, which starts tonight at midnight. There are 89 cities that are participating this fall, starting tomorrow, in 33 different states, plus the District of Columbia. So I am just thrilled that our community gets to be a part of that. We will be locally at Planned Parenthood in Ann Arbor on Professional Drive, which is just off of Huron Parkway in Washtenaw. We plan to start our vigil this evening. Father John Ricardo will be joining us for our first hour. He will be bringing the Blessed Sacrament, and we'll be having adoration. So whether you're Protestant or Catholic, I believe that that will be a very powerful hour for us to all join together in prayer and just worship God and prepare ourselves for the next 40 days. That being said, I think we have some wonderful speakers lined up for you this evening, and Kevin will be able to tell you more about that. But thank you. So at this point, I want to bring up an awesome, awesome woman who's been fighting this crusade for decades now. I want to bring up Dr. Monica Miller, president of the Citizens for the Pro-Life Society, professor of sacred theology at Madonna University, 
And she's an accomplished author as well, including Theology of the Passion of the Christ, among so many other great pieces of literature. So at this point, I'll bring up Dr. Miller. This reminds me of the rallies we used to have before rescues at abortion clinics, with the music and all of the beautiful um, enthusiasm that we have here this evening. And it is my honor to be um, able to address you tonight what I think is one of the most important pro-life efforts that has been organized in a very long time, not only for us locally as a pro-life community, but something that's taking place all across the country starting tonight at midnight. I'm going to begin my remarks by talking about what I think have been moments in which I, I believe I've witnessed the awakening of souls. And I think that's a rare thing that somebody could say that they were on the spot, so to speak, and witness the awakening of souls. Back in 1987, I had the um, opportunity, though I suppose some people wouldn't call that an opportunity exactly, of retrieving aborted babies out of the trash behind the Michigan Avenue Medical Center in Chicago. And I did that activity for about two months with my friend, Edmund Miller. And we decided to get married. We had some very interesting dates. We did this activity in conjunction with pro-lifers in Chicago. I was not living in Chicago at the time. Edmund and I were living in Milwaukee. But I had lived in Chicago for eight years, and I had become very good friends with Joseph Scheidler of the Pro-Life Action League. And it was really he and his organization that made the discovery that the Michigan Avenue Medical Center was disposing of the aborted babies in the trash dumpster, literally in the alley off of Michigan Avenue, where Monroe Street and Michigan Avenue come together. If you ever go to that spot in any of your travels, you should say some special prayers. Joe Scheidler got the brainy idea, he had several brainy ideas, of doing an on-the-street press conference where the actual remains of the aborted babies would be literally on display out on Michigan Avenue in front of the building where the abortion center was located. Needless to say, it's probably the most unusual press conference in the history of journalism. And I was present that day, May 21st, 1987. It was a bright, sunny day, very warm, and we had tables out on the street, on the sidewalk, in front of the abortion clinic, and we had laid out several of the bodies of these aborted babies. And if you know anything about Chicago, the sidewalks are quite crowded with passers-by going to work, going shopping, going to the Art Institute, which was really almost just across the street from us. And I saw a really remarkable thing. And this was after about nine or ten years of pro-life work. When I say I observed, I witnessed the awakening of souls. People would come by and stop at the tables and look and peer over. And I saw expressions on their faces I've never seen before. Absolute shock and horror. And it was so absolutely genuine and spontaneous. And I, I remember these African-American women coming by, just shaking their heads and putting their hands over their mouths and saying, that's a baby. Those are real babies. They were completely dumbfounded. And I thought, why are they having this reaction? Abortion has been legal now for about 15 or 17 years by that time. And it occurred to me, the reason why I'm getting this honest reaction is because there was no psychological preparation. There was no political debate. They hadn't picked up that morning's New York Times and read an editorial 
about how wonderful abortion is and women need to have this in order to be liberated. They had no preparation when on this warm, sunny day as they're going shopping or going to work to be confronted by the reality of abortion. And they gave an honest, human, pure response. And I know that those people will never be the same again. They'll never think about abortion the same way. I've seen this happen on what we call the Face the Truth Tours. I organized three summers in a row. Citizens for a Pro-Life Society teamed up with the Pro-Life Action League in Chicago in the year 2000, 2001, 2002. We didn't have the bodies, but we had the photographs, and we lined them up on busy thoroughfares, and lots of motorists and passers-by would come along. Again, without that preparation, that political debate or that psychological preparation, and I, I saw expressions on people's faces where I knew there was an awakening of their soul. This expression of, oh my God, that's abortion? And you could see as the cars would drive by, it's a facial expression that I think is the only kind of expression that one sees when one has that revelation moment in their lives where a truth that has been hidden is now broken through in their lives. And I know that those people will never be the same again either. For those of you who don't know, I have been arrested several times, and so has Edmund. Like I said, we had very odd dates. And we've gone to jail, and I wrote an account of this awakening of the soul moment when I was in jail, and I'd like to read that for you now. One of the things that I brought with me into the jail were photographs of the aborted babies. The actual photos that Edmund and I had taken of the bodies that we found in the trash. If I were in a conversation with an inmate about abortion, I sometimes took the photos out of my locker to show her the reality of abortion. It became known among the prison population that I had a stash of photos, and inmates came to me from time to time and requested to see them. I was more than happy to oblige. I went to my locker, opened the lock, grabbed the envelope that held the photos, and sat down on the floor near the woman's bunk. I opened the envelope and started sharing the photos. Soon, the photos attracted a small crowd of inmates filled with curiosity. One of the women was Carmen, a handsome Hispanic, 21-year-old cocaine addict. She sat on the floor across from me. Carmen had had nine pregnancies since the age of 14, and she was in fact pregnant with her ninth child just then. Of those nine pregnancies, six of them had ended in abortion. Carmen had more abortions than any woman I had ever known. The photos passed from the hands of one inmate to another and finally into her hands. She was utterly dumbfounded when she saw the pictures. Captivated by the obvious humanity of the children, she shook her head back and forth. I'm a killer, she said. I'm nothing but a killer. Those are real babies. Camille, another inmate, sat on her bunk. She was a large, tough, quick-witted black woman who was also a cocaine addict. She had a two-year-old daughter who had been conceived out of wedlock when Carmen was at a party and had gotten drunk. Camille stared at the photos. She was utterly stunned by what she gazed upon. The photos of the broken bodies instantly shocked her into a depth of reality 
and a zenith of emotion which left her feelings frozen by the tragedy that the broken, twisted bodies caused her to penetrate. I knew this feeling personally many years ago when I first saw the photos of aborted babies in what we call the life or death brochure. Some of you might have seen that brochure. I was literally in a kind of shock. My heart, my mind, my soul were frozen because they were utterly unprepared for the horror and sorrow that the crushed bodies revealed to me. It is the reaction that takes place in that last pure part of the soul when confronted by the desecration of the holy, a desecration beyond what one can imagine. Yet the unspeakable crimes take place, are taking place, and now these crimes are part of a terrible truth, as if we had a glimpse of hell. It makes us tremble, it makes us weep, and the shock solidifies within us a great and absolute no, no. We refuse to be part of the terrible darkness. Our being is filled with a resolution to stand against it. Nothing in this glimpse of hell can be right. And the evil of it all is incarnated in the broken bodies that cry to you for justice. Once you see the bodies with the right mind, you can never go back. They have taken you into their world. We're going to embark on 40 Days for Life. A biblical theme, 40 years the Jews wandered in the desert, 40 days our Lord spent in the desert, prayer, fasting. The 40 days, though, is just the beginning. It's after the 40 years that the Jews enter the promised land. After 40 days, our Lord enters into his public ministry. I think we should look at this 40 days that lies before us as our desert. Because that really is what abortion creates. Abortion takes the fertile land of the womb and turns it into a desert space. And God is asking us to go there. Come with me into this desert space caused by abortion, the rejection of life. And now you must fill it with your faith. Fill these 40 days with your faith. Fill these 40 days with your prayer. Fill these 40 days with your penance. Fill these 40 days with acts of reparation. And fill these 40 days with cries of supplication to God to bring life back where there is no life. And also, please think of this as the beginning. The question is, not whether you're going to participate in the 40 days for life. Yes, you're going to. You're going to sign up and you're going to participate and donate your time and your prayers and all that goes with it. The question is, what will we do after the 40 days are over? There is the real challenge. Unless God wills to perform an absolute miracle, which of course he can, the babies will be dying on day 41. The question is, what will we do on the 41st day when the 40 days for life are spent? Remember that when our Lord left the desert, it was the beginning then he called his disciples. Then he preached the coming of the kingdom. Then he performed his miracles and taught his parables and debated with the Pharisees and had his agony in the garden, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The question is, shall we follow the Lord into the days after the 40 days are over? 
So there is our real challenge. And we, we have then the 40 days to prepare, like the Jews prepared to enter the promised land. And our Lord prepared to enter his public ministry. You see all around us in these booths opportunities. Will we be there at the abortion mills after the 40 days? So you can sign up with Guadalupe Partners and continue your presence at the abortion centers. At Arbor Vitae, Crisis Pregnancy Center, that will be opening in about another four or five months. They need volunteers. And the work continues. So this is our challenge. What will we do after the 40 days are over? I'm absolutely amazed at the ambitiousness of this effort. When we lived in Milwaukee, Citizens for a Pro-Life Society held at least a couple of times a year all-night prayer vigils outside of abortion clinics. So 12 hours. We go from 8 o'clock at night until 8 o'clock in the morning. And I thought that was a lot to plan, to make sure I had people there all through the night with prayers to say and hymns to sing and speakers to keep everybody interested and Now we've got 40 days of round-the-clock presence at our present-day Calvary. That's how you have to look at it. You're keeping vigil with our Lord on Calvary when you go to these abortion centers. But I have to tell you that I noticed when we had those 12-hour prayer vigils, all-night prayer vigils, in the subsequent weeks after, we saved more babies. Women seemed to be talking to us more. I'm not kidding. I saw, I knew that that was a fruit of that prayer effort. So you can be quite assured through this 40 days that God is going to give the unborn babies many, many blessings through the work that you're going to begin tonight at 12 midnight. God bless you all. Dr. Miller, thank you. What struck me about what she just said is that 40 days is just the beginning. It's absolutely true. Let's come together. Let's end this tragedy already. And now that we know what we can do, now that we've begun, and we're about to begin here at midnight, um, I want to bring up the sisters of Mary Mother of the Eucharist. They prepared a special song for us this evening, and they want to perform that for us. So, sisters. I want to do a little brief introduction because there's just a few of us here tonight, but we really do represent the entire community. Ten years ago when we founded the community and chose the name, we said, what is it that the world really needs today? And what can we women religious bring to the world? And that really did influence when we said Mary, Motherhood, and Eucharist. And so it's always the pro-life has been such a major theme of our community because without life, we don't have anybody. I mean, it's such an obvious thing. And I think it's been a real grace for our community to have this slant towards spiritual motherhood that we will bring back the spiritual motherhood that you women, so most of you, so beautifully have the physical motherhood and the spiritual. And so our gift to the church really is a very special spiritual motherhood. About 1988, as Monica was speaking, I thought that's amazing when she gave that example because this song was written in 1988 when a group of pro-lifers in Nashville, Tennessee, were putting together a rally in front of the Capitol, and they wanted a song. And so we said, sure, we would write this, and a group of novices sang this in front of the Capitol then. 
And so tonight, I have the youngest members of our community who just made their profession this past August. So they were saying, we're just right out of the womb too, sister. And I said, well, that's true. (laughs) The name of the song is Song of the Unborn. And so it's like a prayer. Hopefully you'll be able to understand the words. It's the unborn child singing to the mom. as we were listening to that Melissa whispered over to me she says I feel so blessed right now thank you so much sisters wow
We're not only here to prevent abortion, obviously that's the goal, but we're also here to heal hearts for women who have had abortions. So with that in mind, I want to go ahead and bring up the Silent No More Awareness Campaign. It's an honor to be here tonight. Thank you. My name is Mike Stack. I'm the uh, regional coordinator for the Michigan Silent No More Awareness Campaign. I just think it's wonderful that we have young people like uh, Melissa and Kevin putting together such an ambitious (laughs) undertaking. But the, the Silent No More campaign is where rhetoric ends. We have experience versus rhetoric. Now, society sells abortion as something that helps women, but it doesn't. So tonight you'll hear the testimony from Laverne and from Barb that have experienced their abortions and have experienced God's mercy and healing. Thank you for being here. Good evening. I feel so blessed and so privileged to be here with you this evening because I just spent quite a few days myself praying. I was supposed to be in Iraq right now with my unit, but through prayer and other friends praying for me, I made it back home. So here I am. (laughs) And actually, it was about 40 to 45 days that I was actually in Fort Bliss training to prepare to go to Iraq. So this is quite a blessing for me. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And that's from Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. Self-centeredness is the word that enters my mind when I think about the decision I made to experience abortion in my life. I did not think about God or my unborn child. I thought solely about myself and my future. I thought about everything I would miss out on if I continued with my pregnancy. I thought so much about myself, my misery, shame, and the inconvenience that I made a decision that sent me to jail. Not an actual jail because abortion is legal in our country. I went to a jail in my mind. I decided, like many other women did yesterday, today, and will decide tomorrow, next week, next month, and next year, that an unplanned pregnancy is inconvenient. Yet God makes a decision of what is convenient and what is not. I made that decision because the government said I had the right. I had the right to choose in order to protect myself from shame because I was not married, the father of my child was white, and I just wasn't ready to be a mother. I had other dreams to fulfill. That right helped me make a selfish decision. That right and selfish decision caused me to suffer in a jail of depression, guilt, anxiety, shame, blame, and worry for many years. Seventeen years to be exact. Seventeen years ago, I made a decision to visit an abortion clinic not too far from my home. It was only a couple of miles away. And as a woman who had been forgiven and set free from a jail of oppression by the word of God, I want you to take action, and I want you to search your hearts and ask God to give you the courage and the strength to be healed and set free from a jailhouse of your mind if you've experienced abortion. If you are struggling from the pain of abortion, 
I want you to know that a blessing is waiting for you. The blessing is very sweet and comforting, and it's guaranteed. It's a right that is not Congress or Supreme Court approved. It's approved by the blood of the Lamb. I received that blessing about a year ago. I prayed and received the strength and the knowledge to know that I am worthy of his blessing. He set me free from that jail. He released the lock and set me free. I'm free from the jail of my mind and from the pain of abortion. The blessing is forgiveness from the past. Forgiveness is a blessing that only comes from God. I want you to ask yourself if you've experienced it. Do I need to be set free? Do I want to be set free? Or do I want to continue to be held hostage in the jail of my mind? I want you to be set free, and I want you to experience forgiveness. I want you to experience forgiveness and be set free by the word of God. I was set free by the word of God, and I had many sisters who helped me, many, many sisters who helped me facilitate that escape with God. God was our main, was our main man for setting us free. And I went through healing, went through a post-abortive study, and here I am. So please, consider the blessing. Decide whether you want to receive the blessing of forgiveness if you've experienced abortion. And once you accept and receive the blessing, you need to pray for the courage to help pass it on to another woman in your community who might think she's alone and possibly sitting in her own jailhouse up in the mine. By doing that, you can take that selfish act of abortion and grab another sister by the hand and say, I have an interest in you and not myself. And also by doing that, we take on a new attitude. And that attitude is the attitude of Jesus Christ. So thank you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'll be followed by Barb, who's going to give her um, testimony. And very excited to hear Barb's testimony. And Barb Yagman, right? Here she is. Thank you. This is my uh, first public before a microphone type testimony. It was 1977. It was an era of magnificent possibilities for a young engineer like myself. I had just graduated from Wayne State University. I just started a new job at Ford Motor Company. I had a wonderful boyfriend. Life was good. But then the contraception failed, and I was a gal in trouble. I replay the events of that, those two-month period, a very critical uh, point in my life. There is the before the abortion, there's the after the abortion, and then there is the abortion itself. The abortion itself really is actually a two-month period. It's not just a single-day event. I have never experienced anything as frightful as the fear that I felt during those two months when I realized that I was single, pregnant, with no prospects of getting married. I had been raised in a pro-life household. My parents had newspaper articles condemning abortion. I mean, at that time in the 1960s when I was growing up, it really was only legal in communist countries, but my parents paid attention to that. So I was aware of that, and I was very pro-life. 
I was very pro-life for all but two weeks of my life. But when I think back on what was going on, because I was living at home at this time. Okay, so I'm pregnant, okay, I'm at home with my parents. I could not bring myself to tell my parents that I was pregnant. I made hasty arrangements to move out into an apartment and isolated myself from anybody who would ever have counseled me towards continuing the pregnancy and surrounded myself with people whose only thought was that you ought to get rid of it. And I resisted. I held out against them for at least a month. I can remember driving into work, you know, getting into my brand new car and driving into work with morning sickness, pulling off to the side of the road and throwing up and then promising my child that it's okay, I'm going to take care of you and we're going to see this through together, even though I had two flights of stairs to climb up to get into my apartment and I was all alone and the voices in my head and around me were saying, get rid of it. This is a parasite, get rid of it. Well, I knew it was more than a parasite. I knew it was a child. I mean, I was a college graduate. I had taken plenty of science classes. I knew it was a child. That's why I was so conflicted during the whole time. However, for a critical two weeks of my life, I became pro-choice. And so I agreed to the abortion, but I wasn't going to have anything to do with it. My boyfriend had to pay for this. This was all his doing. I was just going to come along. And really, that's all that was necessary. All I had to do was show up. Other people would take care of the rest. And I remained silent about this, and I grieved. I went to confession right away. Probably within two weeks after the abortion, I'm sure I was back. I had been a registered member of St. Mary's of Wayne, so I was a good Catholic. Well, not a perfect Catholic, but a good Catholic. I regretted my abortion, like, immediately. But on the other hand, I was still relieved that this problem had been taken care of. And so I submerged this for years. And I met a fine young man, and we got married, a different young man, not the one that I was partnering with that didn't want my child or me. But I met a man who loved me for myself, and we got married, and we have three living children. And I... And I was honest with him. Now, I don't believe you should hold back something as important as an abortion in your background when you're talking to your future spouse. So I told him before we were married, I had something to tell you, that I had had an abortion. And, of course, I did this when it was dark out, you know, and, it was, and the lights were off and everything. I couldn't see his facial expression. And the next day he asked me about that because he thought he had had a dream that I had told him that I had had an abortion. And I said, no, it's the truth. And he says, well, I still love you. And we got married. And I don't think he realized what he was getting into. Sure, he had nothing to do. He could be uh, very gracious about this abortion that I had had. But I don't think he realized the roller coaster ride I was going to put him through. And not right away. No, I was going to wait until my children were growing up. And my parents had died because there was no way that I was ever going to be able to tell my parents what I had done. First, I was ashamed that I had gotten pregnant and disappointed them. And they had all these great plans, you know, that they, they were so proud of me because I was the first daughter to graduate from college and with a technical degree, an engineering degree, just like my dad had. 
Then I realized that I'm watching them as they get older and how loving and kind they actually were and how they, they would never have been ashamed of me. They would have been there for me. And so I was ashamed that I didn't trust them and I couldn't tell them because I didn't want to hurt them. So my parents died without me ever telling them that I had had an abortion. Now other people can go and tell their parents and some parents even take their daughters to the clinics. To me that's horrifying. You know, I have a hard time even seeing that when that occurs, but I was never able to tell my parents. So abortion put up this big wall between me and my parents, and it does. It breaks up families. It puts up barriers between husbands and wives, men and women, as well as, obviously, mothers and their children, because if you can kill your own child, that does compromise your relationships with all children. It really does. The other reason why I wanted to talk was... I wanted to finally honor Carolyn. That is what I named my child that I brutally had murdered 30 years ago, last July. She never had a chance to see the daylight. And I was really touched by the song that the sisters sang, especially because I thought, wow, Carolyn would probably be singing that to me. So every opportunity I get, I want to make a public acknowledgement of Carolyn because She had no public acknowledgement for 30 long years. It was like she had never existed. And in the minds of a lot of people, she still doesn't exist. But in my mind, she does. And she's a part of my daily life. You know, they've told me uh, that pro-life people, they don't have any compassion. And every time I've told anybody in the, that was strongly pro-life about my abortion, I've only been embraced with compassion and understanding. A lot of them don't understand how anybody could do that to a child. But on the other hand, they are compassionate. Now, I have to say for the other side, when I've encountered people that were very strongly pro-abortion rights, they are not always compassionate towards me. I've been told I should get over it, that it was probably the best thing that I'd ever done in my entire life. So I just wanted to give you a round of applause, thanking you for your compassion, and keep that up because that is how we are going to get this turned around. Because of our compassion that we will have kindness towards people, we'll be able to teach the rest of the nation the value of human life and the whole idea of common courtesy. Well, I guess in conclusion, though, I wanted to say why I came out and I'm silent no more, is because I wanted to put a face on abortion itself. We don't see too many pictures of aborted babies, and we certainly don't see the women who have gone through the procedure, because Alan Guttmacher said, of the Institute, that's a research arm of Planned Parenthood, says that 40% of us between the ages of 15 and 50 have had abortions. Well, if that's the case, then you're probably two out of every five women here, and most of us are keeping our silence in shame. But if you decide to come out and join us, you will not be met with shame or condemnation, definitely not. You will be welcomed with a great deal of warmth. Thank you very much for your attention. I just want to point out something. 
And I'm sure you realize the courage that these women have to stand up here before you and admit their deepest, darkest secret. When a woman or man is involved in abortion, part of them dies with the child. And I think about death and Christ's victory over death. You know, we can be pretty depressed when we think about the abortion statistics. I think worldwide, something like 90 a minute. It's ungodly. How can we have hope with that? But Christ has defeated death. When these women get up and stand here, they have to relive their shame and guilt. But Christ uses that death to inform the public of the, the harm that abortion causes women. He transforms that death so that their children are honored, that their death isn't in vain, because they can warn others of the problem of abortion, and they can speak of God's mercy, and that conquers death. So thank you for listening. So, how can we get involved with 40 Days for Life? Well, it would be wonderful to see you sign up for as many hours as possible and definitely commit to that. We would love to have you step by anytime during the 40 Days for Life. 24 hours a day we'll be out there. But if you can commit to some hours so that we can fill those holes that we have right now, that would be wonderful. The other way to get involved is through community outreach. And I have Christy Whiting here, who has just been a godsend for us as far as the community outreach goes. And that's part of the door-to-door campaign and some of the media that we've been doing. She's already held one training event, and she does have some more coming up that I would love for her to tell you about. Christy Whiting? Basically, our community outreach, the bulk of this program is taking groups and going door-to-door, inviting people to pray for an end to abortion for the success of this campaign, and for healing for all those who have experienced abortion. We find it very important to add that last part. If they do expect that we are going to be angry or confrontational, that they know, no, this is a message of compassion, that we're here out of love. We do care about the women, not just the babies. We care about them both, and about the men who have experienced abortion, too. We'll have a training at 12 noon, and then our teams will go out from there. We have maps, we have materials to hand out, Then we'll come back to the church for a little debriefing and just to be able to share the stories of what God has done along the way as we've talked to different people around Ann Arbor. Come talk to me if you're interested. Let's spread the word. The other key piece to this is the prayer and fasting part. So our 40 days begins tonight at midnight. And I would invite all of you to consider what ways can you fast? What are you willing to give up or sacrifice for an end to abortion during the very first 40 days that there ever was? Some of the people decided to do a bread and water fast. Of course, we're not asking all of you to do that, but if you can give up TV, you can give up your morning cup of coffee, if you can give up one meal a day, anything that you can sacrifice and offer up to our Lord for the end of this awful tragedy. The other thing is the prayers. If you can remember consciously to pray for an end to abortion every day through this 40 days, make it a point, write it on your steering wheel, write it on your bathroom mirror for when you get up in the morning so that every day you're remembering to pray for an end to abortion for this local campaign. You can also sign up online at www.40daysforlife.com and put in your name and your email address. When you do that, you'll be receiving daily prayer devotionals 
the 89 cities that are participating are also signing up online this way, where you'll be emailed daily a prayer devotional, something that you can pray for every day throughout this 40 days. And united in prayer, all these 89 cities will be praying for the same thing. So I encourage you all to do that. And that's also how you'll get updates about the campaign. We've been observing the 40 Days for Life campaign on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ. We just heard highlights of the Ann Arbor, Michigan kickoff event. After this break, we'll hear an archive talk by Father John Ricardo from a Right to Life fundraising dinner in Dearborn, Michigan a couple of years ago. This is Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. An important source of funds for the Fight for Life for the various Right to Life dinners held around the country. I attended one a couple of years ago in Dearborn, Michigan. Father John Ricardo, the pastor of Our Lady of Good Counsel Church, was the speaker. I apologize for the distant quality of the recording, my mistake, but what Father John has to say is very worthwhile. Here is Father John Ricardo. We're obviously all here tonight because we are advocates for life. Otherwise, this would be an odd place for you to be right now. If you're not, this will be a really awkward next 35 or 40 minutes, whatever long I'm going to talk. Hopefully we're here as well because we're convinced about the truth that, as Pope John Paul II once uh, powerfully put it, this is one of my favorite expressions of our late Holy Father, there is in the modern culture what he called a pulverization and a degradation of the dignity and the uniqueness of the human person. We see that being actualized all sorts of different ways in the moments in which we're living. I get tired, I'm sure all of you get tired of hearing 1.2 million abortions a year. We get tired for lots of reasons. One, because it's ridiculous that we kill 1.2 million children a year. But also, that just becomes a number, at least for me. Kathy and so many others who are are so vehemently involved in this, or so uh, vocally involved in this. Others of us who have been involved in the cause for life, you have to find ways to speak about 1.2 million. What is 1.2 million for Colonel Well. If you break that down into the daily segment, how many children die a day, it's the number of casualties that we've had in the war in Iraq since the war started. And what have we seen since the war started? We've seen headline after headline after headline telling us one soldier died, three soldiers died, it was a brutal day yesterday, we lost 10 people. And that's all true. The loss of life in the war is horrendous. But what about a headline for 3,200 children a day? What about a photo? What about something? Anything? We don't get it. How is it that we're so involved in wanting that war to stop, and we're seemingly not so interested as a country in wanting this war to stop? Perhaps a more pressing issue, if that's possible to say, at least for us as a state right now, is the whole fight that we have over the use of embryonic stem cells. This is uh, kind of getting made manifest in an ever more insistent push to destroy human life so as to extract embryonic stem cells, even though there has not been a single cure, not one single cure that has come from the use of embryonic stem cells. This is even though people have actually died from the use of embryonic stem cells, which because they have the capacity to become all sorts of different organs, have become the wrong organs and caused people to die. 
This is so even though we have cures that have come about from the use of stem cells taken in illicit way, whether it's from the blood out of the umbilical cord, from bone marrow, from adult brain cells, from the placenta, from a variety of different sources. And our state right now, and it's going to happen quickly, is going to be increasingly faced with the challenge of having to decide whether or not we're going to be one of the leading states, quote-unquote, in allowing the destruction of human life so that other lives can be saved. Figure that one out. We're going to potentially lead the charge in destroying life so that we can save life. And this is going to quickly be before our, our legislature. And it's incumbent upon you and I to not only know that this is going to happen, but we have to know the issue. In fact, if you, uh, if you go onto the state of Michigan's website, go to www.michigan.gov. There's a ballot right there, an online petition that you can sign. This is what it says. Speak out in support of stem cell research. Earlier this year, a strong bipartisan majority in the United States Senate opened the doors of medical research by authorizing new federal funding for stem cell research. Notice they leave it at that. One of the confusing things about this particular topic is they don't, we don't make the distinctions between embryonic stem cell and stem cell, huh? Unfortunately, less than 24 hours later, President George W. Bush slammed the door shut. This is on the state of Michigan's webpage. Not the Democratic webpage, the state of Michigan's webpage. He used his first ever veto to stop the discovery of new treatments and cures for injuries and diseases, including juvenile diabetes, Parkinson's, and spinal cord injuries. Well, no, he didn't. I put an end to federal funding of embryonic stem cells. While Bush is putting up obstacles in Washington, we have a great opportunity to tear them down here in Michigan. Two representatives have introduced legislation that would remove the decades-old restrictions that were created before scientists knew the life-saving potential of this research. Enough is enough. Stem cell research holds the power to improve the lives of thousands of Michiganders. The men, women, and children who suffer from conditions for which there is no treatment or cure deserve our help, so do the families and friends who care for them. If you agree with me, and the more than 70% of the American people, political leaders of both parties, and many of this country's top scientists who support this critical research, then join me by signing this online petition. And here's the petition. Dear Senate Majority Leader Sakama and Speaker Roach, I am joining Governor Jennifer Granholm in asking you to pass Representative Meisner and Senator Whitmer's bills easing restrictions on stem cell research in Michigan. I agree that stem cell research holds the potential for new treatments and possible cures for many diseases, including Parkinson's, spinal cord injuries, and juvenile diabetes. Well, stem cell research does hold potential for that. And in fact, the use of adult stem cells really works. But that's misleading. And that's how this is going to continually be presented to us. And that's why it's so important for you and I to know what's going on, to know the issues, to be intellectually involved enough to realize what is happening so that we can speak truthfully about it. This is aside from the fact that we got a growing interest in human cloning, which we're certainly going to see and this ongoing push for physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. While we've all come tonight, I think we could safely say that every one of us here is at a different place in this journey. Some of us perhaps have never been to something like this. First time you came to a dinner to buy a ticket, to pay some money, which goes to help support life. First time for you? Thank you. I'm glad to have you here. Others here have been involved since the tragedy of Roe versus Wade. They've been on the front lines of trying to speak out on behalf of human dignity ever since that horrible day in the early 70s. Others of us have been involved in working in pregnancy counseling centers. Some of us pray outside of abortuaries on Saturday mornings. Some people here pray and fast for our political leaders, for 
the conversions of their minds and hearts and for the courage to truly care for the common good that's entrusted to them. Some people here write some pretty substantial checks, not just yearly, but far more frequently than that, to write to life of Michigan and other causes which promote the dignity of life. We have a broad spectrum of people who are here tonight. It's a little humbling to speak in the presence of some of you because you've been doing this a lot longer than I have. We're all grateful for that witness and inspired by it, but my point is just that we're in different places. And what I'm hoping tonight is that the Lord will open up our ears so that no matter where we are, he will somehow find a way to light a fire under us to do more and to not become complacent in any way. Not by measuring ourselves against what someone else is doing, but by listening to his voice and to hear what it is that he wants us to do. I thought what the Lord wanted to do tonight is to give something like a call to action, hopefully a gentle encouragement, and something like a rallying cry for all of us who are here. This is going to be repetitive for many of us, but for others of us, for whom tonight is maybe as far as we've gone before on matters of life, you know, come to a dinner, write a check, think that we've done our job. That's not enough. Not enough to come to a dinner. Not enough to write a check. It's good to write a check. They're certainly going to ask you tonight. You can bet on this to write a check. <laughs> All right? That's not sufficient to think that we've done our job. This cause needs money. But we need more. Some of us in this room are in positions, whether it's in business or uh, because of the personalities and the gifts that we've been given, whatever it might be, some of us are in positions to do far, far more than simply write a check and come to a dinner. Who says we should do more? I think Jesus does. I think that's who says we have to do more. And I don't want to speak generically tonight as an advocate for life. I want to speak more specifically as a priest for whom this is a most pressing issue. So what I want to try to do tonight is kind of gently weave our way through, I think there's three scripture passages that, as I've been praying for tonight, have been on my mind in particular, either because the Holy Spirit's put them there, or because it's Lent and I'm hungry, and they're sticking in my mind. But they're in my mind, and you're going to get them tonight one way or another. So... First passage is from the beginning of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, what does that mean? What is the gospel, really? Well, the gospel means what? Good news. But clearly, the gospel is not good news for many people in our culture. If it was good news, they wouldn't be so adamant about removing the Ten Commandments. If it was good news, they wouldn't be so adamant about taking Jesus' name out of everything let alone God's. If it was such good news, they wouldn't be so adamant about removing a crash or a manger or whatever religious symbol, Christian religious symbol, out of the public squares. The gospel is simply, for our culture today, for an increasingly large percentage of people, not good news. It's a threat. That's why there's such a push against it. It's seen as some sort of enemy of the human person, some sort of enemy of human freedom, maybe just the enemy, period. We've got people advocating that Christianity is more dangerous right now than radical Islam. Just good old, faithful, orthodox Christianity is frightening for many people. You and I know better. At least we should know better than that. What is it that we're supposed to be spreading to others? What is it that Paul is not ashamed of? As someone once put it, the message of the gospel, the good news, pretty much boils down to this. You put your name there. You are far, far, far more important than you could have ever dared to imagine or dream. That's the message of the gospel. Why? Because for you, God has become man, has suffered upon the cross, 
has poured out his precious blood, has risen from the dead, and has prepared a place for you forever in heaven. Not just to be entertained, but to share in his own abundant life. But it's not just you that's more important than you ever imagined. It's everyone sitting in this room. It's everyone living on the face of the earth. It's everyone from the very first moment of their conception in their mother's wombs. Every single human person is far more important than we have ever dared to imagine. It's that truth that every person has been created out of the love of God, been redeemed by his son's precious blood, been destined to share forever in the life of heaven that compels us to defend life and the dignity of the human person, whether it's in the womb, in a laboratory, frozen on ice, in hospice, on the streets of Detroit looking for something to eat. So keeping in mind St. Paul's words about not being ashamed of this gospel, I would suggest that what we need today, what we urgently need today, are prophets. We think of prophets, we tend to think of people in strange clothes, who eat strange food, who live in really strange houses if they've even got a house. Huh? So John the Baptist comes quickly to mind for me. John has a wardrobe that is not quite my taste. He eats food, which is certainly not my taste. And he doesn't have a house, which is not the case for any of us. And to be sure, you know, in the Bible we see characters like John, we see Jonah, we see all these different people. But to be a prophet doesn't have anything to do with what I wear, what I eat, where I live. To be a prophet doesn't really have anything to do with foretelling the future, although that's how we tend to think of prophets. A prophet, quite simply, is someone who speaks on God's behalf. So he's not necessarily walking around with a placard saying, 40 days more and the world will be destroyed. He's not standing on a soapbox chastising us for this, that, and the other thing. He or she is someone who opens up their mouth to speak on God's behalf. And in the course of history, God has raised up heroic men and women who have done just this, who have heard his call and have spoken on his behalf. I think in the Old Testament, in a special way, the prophet Amos. Amos is this tremendously heroic man who speaks out against the injustice, the oppression, the neglect, and the needy which is happening amongst the people of Israel. So God uses Amos to go and challenge people, to call them back to their senses. And I would say we need people like Amos today to speak out against injustice, against the neglect of the most needful, the most vulnerable, the most defenseless of our brothers and sisters. So where are the prophets? They're you. You're the prophet. When you got baptized, we got made prophets. More precisely, we became sharers in Christ's one life as prophet. We were all commissioned by God, charged by God, entrusted by the task from God to speak to others on his behalf. In fact, if I don't speak, the message, quite simply, doesn't get heard. Christ has no other mouth but yours and mine. If I remain silent, his voice somehow doesn't get raised in the midst of this world to the level that it wants to get raised. God expects this of you and of me. So maybe going back to Paul, we can ask ourselves, am I boldly speaking up on behalf of the dignity of life all the time, everywhere? How many of us at work find ourselves in circumstances which are all too common, where whatever issue that's out there, whether it's embryonic stem cells, whether it's abortion, whether it's euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide or vitro fertilization or cloning or whatever it might be, the issue comes up and we know we have the opportunity either to say something, maybe to challenge somebody, perhaps to correct somebody gently who may not be in the know, or we can sit there and go, oh man, I don't really know that I want to go there. Well, I'm commanded to speak gently, but I'm commanded to speak. Huh? I'm supposed to always speak the truth 
but with love. You're not supposed to pound people over the head with it, but it'd be a jackhammer or a drill who just continues to drive it into you. But I'm supposed to not be silent in the face of injustice and neglect. Where can I be more courageous in my daily life in defending the dignity of the human person? Second passage that builds on that comes from Jesus' words in the Gospel of Luke. This is one of the passages which has always been most provocative for me in my life. It's in Luke chapter 9, verse 26, and Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. As we reflect on life and the fullness of the gospel tonight, this challenge to proclaim the dignity of the human person, which is intrinsic to the message of the gospel, that's a passage well worth reflecting on. Where in my life am I ashamed to speak up on behalf of life? The passage doesn't simply mean that we who are Christians must not be ashamed to identify ourselves as Christians. It means that we must not be ashamed to testify to all that Jesus has said. What's he said? The good news. What's the good news? You are far, far, far more important, and so is every other human being than you've ever dared to imagine. So if I'm ashamed to speak out on behalf of the dignity of the unborn, if I'm ashamed to get involved in trying to champion the dignity of the frozen embryo. I'm ashamed to speak out on behalf of the poor, the suffering, the sick, the dying, the marginalized, wherever they are. If I fail to recognize Jesus in the least of my brothers and sisters, no matter how small, no matter how different they look than me, no matter how useful they might be to society, then he's going to be ashamed of me when I die. And I hope to God he's not ashamed of me when I die. This is, I think, most important for us who are men here. I say that not to let women off the hook. I say that simply because I have no idea what's going on inside a woman's mind. Simply because I'm a man. (laughs) But what I know about being a man is this. And maybe women are the same. I just, I don't know it. But I know this about men. Men hate being cowards. We hate lacking courage. No man wants to lack courage. No man wants to be thought of as having lacked courage. No man wants to be mediocre. No man wants to be insignificant. Every man wants to make a difference. We want to save. We want to be heroic. We want to be noble. We want to be courageous. We want to fight on behalf of those who are in trouble. Well, my brothers, here is one very concrete place and way that we can do that and step up and play the man and be heroic and do great things, not merely for God, but for our brothers and sisters who need our voice. Third and final passage. Perhaps the one that I felt strongly in uh, my mind and in prayer as I've been praying about tonight. It's from the Gospel of Matthew. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. It's one of those passages that we know too well. We hear it, and the moment we hear it, we tune out. I know that. Hear it. Really. Singular. You. Jim. Jeff. Mary. Tom. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out trodden underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. city set on a hill cannot be hid. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel. They put it on a stand where it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine. What does salt do? It does two things. It preserves and it gives flavor. Jesus is trying to tell you and me that we're supposed to do something similar in our daily lives. We're supposed to preserve And we're supposed to give flavor. We're called upon, charged with the task of somehow preserving something that is perhaps dying in our culture. 
we're called upon to preserve the dignity of the human person, which for the last 200 years at least has been increasingly more so than pulverized and degraded. Given tonight's gathering, we're called upon to preserve the dignity so as to ensure that the human person is never reduced to a mere thing, to an object, a problem, let alone a potential cure for someone else's sickness. We're called, in short, to preserve the humanness of our culture. Without the gospel, the world is no longer human. But we're also called to flavor the culture in which we live. Bland food is just that, bland. It doesn't have any taste. Some people, for Lent, they give up salt. They just intentionally have all their food be bland, ordinary. And the Lord's saying something similar about us. Without our presence, the world is bland. How much more tasteless can it be in so many ways to live in a culture which wants to rip apart human beings, however small they are, so that other human beings who are sick can become well? If that's not tasteless, I don't know what is. This is the image I want to leave you with. This is a lamp. And Jesus is talking in the gospel saying, you are the light of the world. This is what he means. But the word he uses in Greek is, is a little hand lamp. The kind of thing that you light when your power goes out and everybody's in a room and it's dark and someone needs to see to find where the bathroom is. This is what you light. Or you, maybe you got a flashlight if you're more sophisticated than I am. We got candles in our house. Without light, you can't see. Without light, you can't find where danger's hiding. Without light, everything is obscure. It's a little frightening. It's a little terrifying. Jesus says, you and I are light. You and I, he says, are supposed to understand that just as we would light a lamp during a power outage, bring it into the room so that others can see, so he has lit you. He wants to put you into his hand. He wants to bring you into every situation that you go so as to illumine the environment, to bring the light that is him, the Lord Jesus, into every situation so that, in this case, the dignity of people might be preserved and protected. Without the light, the light that is the message of the gospel, the good news, the announcement that the human person is so much more important than we ever dared to imagine, without this light, the world can't see. The world becomes afraid. The world lives in confusion. The culture and the society is unable to perceive the danger that's hiding under the guise of helpful or useful technology or medical practices. Your home, your workplace, your school, wherever you go, anytime during the day, is the house that Jesus talks about in the gospel. And in this house, you must shine. Period. You must shine. That's what light is for. The alternative is this. Here's a bushel. No one does this. No one lights a lamp, puts it on a table, puts a bucket over it. It would just be stupid. We all know that. It would be pointless. It's every bit as pointless as the Lord having lit you and me and charged us with the task of going out into the culture in which we live. It makes no sense for you and me to have been lit by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and then to have hidden the light and to have not shared it with others. In this case, not shared with others the dignity of the human person, which is such a key part of the gospel message. So maybe there's three questions we can all ask ourselves tonight. First question. What have I done for life, to protect life, to speak out for life, to defend life, to get involved? What have I done? Second question, what am I doing now on behalf of life? 
And the third question, what should I do? What, Lord, are you asking me concretely tonight? Maybe in the season of Lent. Maybe that's one of the things the Lord wants to do with us, is help us to use this tremendous season of grace, a season that's always been used by the church as a time of discernment, time of deeper prayer, to ask him, Lord, how do you want to use me as regards matters of life? We've all been anointed for this. It's just a question of how we're going to do it. I can't answer that for you. I don't know what he's calling you to do. I just know he's calling us all to do something. It's up to us personally to go to him and ask, how, Lord, do you want to use me in my own particular environment? A lot of people get frustrated living in our day. For all the assaults that we see on life, for the, the filth that we see in the media, for all the stuff that we're constantly exposed to. I know people who, who wish they could just run away from everything that's here. It is discouraging, or it's easy to get discouraged when you see so many attacks on life. But there's a different way to look at it. The other way to look at it is that it's an incredible thing that God has created you and me to live at this time in history, in this country, when there are so many assaults on life. He didn't choose you to live in the 18th century. He didn't choose you to live in the 19th century. He didn't choose you to be an advocate on behalf of the freedom of our African Americans who were being enslaved. He didn't choose you to live then. He chose you to live now. He's got confidence in you now. He made you for this age, for this time, in this city, in this state, in this country, to speak on behalf of life. He has hope, we can say that, I think, in you and in me. He trusts us. He wants to exploit us in the best of that sense. He gave us every gift that we have, every talent that we have. He gave it so that we would spend it in such a way so that we would die exhausted, making a great return on the investment that he's given to us. That's great news and a tremendous reason for us to be confident that he wanted us to be living now for this time and this cause to make a difference. So let's live our lives in such a way that our Heavenly Father is proud to call us his children, his sons and his daughters. And so that far from being ashamed of us at the end of our lives, but just open up his arms and tell us how delighted he is that we have used all of his gifts and resources in the way that he intended them. We've had a pro-life edition today on Putting on the Mind of Christ. First, we had the highlights of the kickoff event at the Ann Arbor, Michigan, 40 Days for Life campaign. Then we just heard Father John Ricardo with a talk he gave at a Dearborn, Michigan, Right to Life dinner a couple of years ago. A CD of this program is available for $8.50. Order program number 285. To place your order or for more information, phone 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506. Or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. Putting on the Mind of Christ is presented by the station and the Ave Maria Communications Guild. To assure continuation of programs like this, we encourage you to become a radioactive Catholic and support this station with your treasure. To support the production of this program, you can join the Ave Maria Communications Guild. Phone 877 288 1077. 877 288 1077 or go to amcguild.org on the internet. Catholic Radio, it's yours to keep. This is your host and program producer, Henry Root. Thanks for being with us on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ. Until next time, may our Lord richly bless you and your families. This is Ave Maria Radio.